Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 100. That's right, episode number 100 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Superman Lover. And I'm joined here by my illustrious co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, the creme de la creme of House Street, the man who's caused more trouble than Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker in a massage parlor, the <laughs> gorilla of House Street, JJ. How's it going? Good, brother. How are you today? I'm doing great, man. Our guest today is co-executive producer and featured in the Netflix docuseries Made Off the Monster of Wall Street. He is the author of the acclaimed book Made Off Talks, uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history, which is the basis for the Netflix docuseries. He is known for his hard-hitting interviews and leading figures from the world of business, politics, and sports, host of syndicated radio shows, Business Talk with Jim Campbell, and his crime show, Forensics Talk with Jim Campbell. Of course, I'm talking about Jim Campbell. Jim, how's it going? Great. Honor to be number uh, show number 100, guys. Thanks. Yeah, man. We appreciate it. Special, special guest, man. No, it's it's an honor, man. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Before we jump into the whole Madoff story situation, uh, we we let's uh let's go uh get to know you a little bit for the listeners that aren't familiar. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, background, and career? Okay, um, I uh, went to uh, undergraduate at Tufts and uh, then got an MBA at Dartmouth. And you may not care about either of those ancient facts. I uh, worked for IBM and then Dean Witter and some of my own businesses and. Uh, I got into radio and um, in part because uh, the I wanted to do something that was deeper diving rather than all this, you know, um, what do you call them, clips kind of, you know, and right, left or polarized. And mm-hmm. so I had a different kind of uh, goal and I started right around the uh, financial crash, which was another goal I had, which is most people didn't understand what was going on. What's a credit default swap? Why did it blow up? And I wanted to try and make that understandable. And then I happened to get lucky on um, getting connected to Andrew Madoff through an interview I did with a woman named Lori Sandell, who'd done a book on their life, kind of family stuff that he'd cooperated with a bit. And that's how I got into it. He introduced me to Ruth Madoff, who moved to Greenwich, where I live. Ruth introduced me to Bernie in prison. And the rest is history, 400 pages of back and forth. Yeah, incredible. So, so you said you met. So, you got introduced to Ruth from uh, what was the person's name again? I'm sorry. And, oh, sorry. I should make that clear. Andrew Madoff, who was son. the younger son of Bernie. Oh. And after I and I talked, I got to talk to him off the record. He was being sued left and right, so he couldn't go on. Uh, and I came right on and went right after him. Said, you know, you got three million bucks from your dad right before it went down. Shouldn't you be giving that money back? He disarmed me by being pretty straight, seemingly very honest. And that's how it happened. And and Ruth happened to be moving here. And I said, well, let me take her to lunch. And he set it up. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, we're going to we're going to jump some more into that. Before before we do, um, for the listeners, Jim, that might not be familiar with the story, could you maybe give us just, you know, the brief uh, synopsis of, you know, of the Ponzi scheme and how, you know, Bernie ran two businesses, et cetera? OK, um, first off, Bernie Madoff. Uh, was from a middle-class background in Queens in New York. And he had this burning drive to come to Wall Street and to make it. 
and he actually built a completely legitimate uh, business that JJ knows about uh, called a market maker. It's a wholesaler uh, executing trades for mainly discount brokers. Um, and what that uh, meant was he cracked the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange. He helped architect the NASDAQ, bringing uh, from anything from pink sh uh, sheet stocks up to the regional exchanges, basically under one screen. Before that, uh, pricing was very tra uh, non-transparent. You had to make phone calls to different market makers. So a lot of people don't get the, that he actually built a completely legitimate business at one point for worth $3 billion at peak. Um, the Ponzi scheme means there is no real investment activity going on. Returns are coming from the money of some investors in it and being given to others, which is why you always need more people coming in the front door with new money that are leaving out the back door, redeeming the money that they put in. And that's why they don't last normally. And Bernie's lasted for 40 years. Um, so at the same time he was building this uh, market maker, he was actually building the biggest criminal fraud on, on Wall Street at the same time, an investment advisory business, a hedge fund, a Ponzi scheme on the 17th floor of the lipstick building behind lock, key and door, while the legitimate firm was on the 19th floor um, side by side. And he built them side by side over decades. Wow. Incredible. So we just got to take a quick second uh, to shout out to our sponsors of the podcast, Apex Trader and Top Step Funding. Any listener of this podcast that has the skills to pass an evaluation can become a prop trader fully funded by either Apex Trader or Top Step Funding. Our own micro e-futures trading community has many members who are now fully funded. No need to trade with your own money. Keep 90% of the profits. To learn more, visit our website with micro e-futures. Smart way to go. Smart way to go, Jim. Um, I want I want to ask you about your your first meeting with the, the son, um, and then I guess subsequently the wife. Um, what what were those first interactions like? I know you said you you came hard um, at first, yeah. So um, yeah. I, um, first off, it was just an amazing thing because at that point the Madoffs and Andrew were like the most vilified people on the planet. And I suddenly find myself on the phone with him and expecting, um, you know, to find basically a criminal. And um, and he was so different and um, decent and intellectual. And as I say, he disarmed me by the fact that he answered my questions um, uh, that were pretty, pretty tough. And as I said, my show happened to be live then. So he said he was going to listen the next day. Mm -hmm. And that if he heard me saying the same kinds of things, he would actually talk to me. And um, and and the fact that he did feel that he comfortable with me afterwards is how he introduced me to Ruth. And and I'll tell you, uh, Ruth and I met for the first time in a restaurant in a cold December day in Old Greenwich, where I live. There was no one in the restaurant when uh, she came in. She had sunglasses on, which she would not take off for a long while. She didn't want to be recognized. Mm -hmm. She proceeds to eat the chef salad like she's had no food in a month and also completely disarmed me. Um, attractive, nice, answered my questions, was devastated by this until we walk out the door. And I said, Ruth, can we get a picture? And she stops. You're wired, aren't you? She thought oh, I set wow. her up. And after, <laughs> wow. after I confirmed that I would not do that, and I said, Andrew, tell her I didn't do that. She's the one that hooked me up uh, with Bernie. And um, Bernie, you know, once we got approval through the prison warden to have emails, et cetera, he wrote me handwritten letters and emails. And I said, Bernie, this is your chance to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you say. And he say, 
He said, Jim, I accept those terms. And if you think about it, I have Andrew, Ruth, Bernie, Andrew's girlfriend, Catherine Hooper, who was brilliant and helped him stay alive. Um, they couldn't get married or anything because of the legal problems. None of them knew me from dirt. And they trusted me with their legacy. And none of them knew what my conclusions were until I happened to be, when the book came out, Bernie died right before, coincidentally. So I got on CBS Sunday morning, two, which is 5 million viewers, two days before the book came out. And um, that was when the family heard what findings I had. In chapter eight, I go through whether they knew or not on my from my investigation. Mm -hmm. The Justice Department, the FBI, the bankruptcy trustee, the forensic investigators all thought they had to know. And so they heard my findings on that show. Yeah. Wow. It, 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 interesting. So I, I guess well, I'll start with this, Jim. What what do you think it was about you that enabled the trust uh, yeah. from, from the family? I wish I knew what that was. Uh, it is one of the most I, – I don't understand it, to be honest. Now, my approach is straight. It's fact-based. It's follow the truth wherever it is. I don't have an agenda or anything. So I think it comes across um, that that's how I operate. But, you know, on that hand, think about it. Um, Bernie was guilty and, and trusted me with his um, legacy, and it didn't work out for him. The other three trusted me, didn't know me, and it did work out to an extent uh, with them. But to be honest, I don't know why. Why would you have talked to me? You're the most vilified guy on the planet. You don't know who the hell I am. Um, and obviously it was a great honor, you know, so, um, I don't a hundred percent know. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if I, if I understand correctly, so you said you, you know, your conclusions, um, in the book, whether the family knew your conclusions were the family didn't know, correct? My family was, yeah, that they did. They, first of all, they were not, that they were not involved right. and, that they did, and that they did not know. And I have to be honest, it, I had the, the investigation was touch and go right until, I found the evidence I needed to show just to, just to give you the, the big issue. Bernie moved $800 million in the back door of the um, market maker upstairs on 19 and he hid it in the trading P and L's who, oh. who ran the trading desks, Mark. And, and Andrew. And Andrew. There was yeah. a proprietary desk and then the market maker. So that didn't look yeah. good. Yeah. And I had, I, and that's where the forensic investigator in particular said they were covering up huge trading losses. And I had a trouble with that because their proprietary desk wasn't that big. And why would they have accepted $800 million of trading losses over 10 years? Made no sense to me as the market yeah. maker was where the business was. This was, yeah. Uh, where you make money on commissions, uh, spreads. So yeah. um, that was what I had to get underneath. And I finally, um, I finally got there. Wow. It's uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so go ahead, go ahead, Jay. No, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, because there was a, like, I, I was a trader and I met Madoff at one of the Staney conventions, and I think it was in 97. And at that time, you know, we just looked at him as the grandfather of NASDAQ. And he was looking at us because I was a Vancouver based trader. So he was kind of like, oh, you guys are Canadian. You're kind of scammy. Right. And we got that, you know, he had a, he didn't have a very, you know, uh, a warm, uh, yeah. approach to the Canadian traders. He was like, Oh, you guys, you know, I, you know, and, uh, it was just interesting because their market making firm while in, you know, in the early days, they had a lot of order flow. They didn't really in, in the mid nineties to late nineties, they weren't really that, that big, you know? And yeah. so it's interesting to see that 
if, if they, if those two guys had seen that kind of money moving through it, um, you know, they would have seen some definite red flags and, and they seemed that when I met those two, they kind of seemed more kind of, um, uh, not kind of naive, but they were like more clean, plain vanilla guys. They weren't really like, you know, guys in New York, you could tell when someone's a hustler or when someone's yeah. a player. These guys were not players. They were very sort of like straight, you know, and uh, it, it didn't seem to me that, you know, when I looked back upon it, I was like, ah, you know, maybe they didn't know, you know, and not many people knew about his money management business unless you were invited. So it wasn't really common knowledge. You know, in fact, part of the Bernie's deal at the time was the um, hedge fund um, managers and their investors were not allowed to say who the manager was, in fact. And then Bernie misrepresented to anybody that did know that he was just doing commission trading for the hedge fund, which is obviously totally misleading because the hedge funds had to sign an agreement that Bernie had 100 percent control. You're right about the sons, too, because. They were essentially what I call the front of the restaurant. You know, the maitre d's that were there to make sure it looked beautiful. Yeah. And his business looked like a Hollywood set. I mean, the, the, the uh, literally the terminals had to be, com- the screens completely in alignment. Everything was black and silver. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Couldn't leave papers on the desk. And, um, that, and then, you know, just like the mob in the back room, or in this case, two days, <laughs> doors down is where all the bad stuff is going on. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was interesting, and I, I noticed, and I still haven't I haven't had a chance to read your book yet. But in you know we watched the documentary over the Christmas holidays, and it was funny how his, his whole back office operation on the other floor yeah. was all people from Staten Island, yes, right. And so I always say, listen, if you if if you're gonna run a scam, you got to need loyal people from Staten Island. <laughs> Actually, it was high school graduates from Queens, Brooklyn, and Staten Island. Yeah. And um, these guys had no idea what they were doing when they got there, so he manipulated them. And then once they figured something wasn't kosher, he was paying them so much money uh, that they were going to stay quiet. And the great the, the great thing is he they were so manipulable, they did they enabled this, oper- did all the operations for 40 years and never figured out it was a Ponzi scheme. Exactly. It's, it's fascinating, you know, yeah. how he compartmentalized. Everybody, yes. you know, like everybody was on a need to know basis. Yes. You know, and it's it's just like when they do these black ops things, there's one team that knows something, another team, but they don't mix, you know, very 100% it's just right. Fascinating you know what? how they did that. He, he took advantage of the Wall Street system. He was always saying the Chinese walls, right? Yeah, the Chinese Great. wall, the Chinese Second wall. Yeah. Traders can't have access to the investment banking deals. And that's what he did, fit his mind, which was compartmentalized. JJ said, and it kept everybody from only knowing pieces. Yeah, incredible. That's that's the fascinating part. Is like 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 just living with that that knowledge without anyone else knowing going on. That's uh, that's incredible. You, so your your first meeting with him, Jim, uh, what what was what was that like? Was was he reluctant? Was he guarded? What yeah. just you know, here's the thing about Bernie. Um, he didn't do this for greed. It was ego, hubris. Mm-hmm. He had to be the guy. He had to deliver. And he had to continuously, almost like Nixon reminded me of, defend that what his strategy was, was real. And this is how it worked, Jim. And and all these accusations that it was fake and everything, I, this strategy worked. Then he would pause and say, okay, I admit I wasn't doing trading. But in theory, it worked. I mean, it's yeah. delusional. It was delusional. And he came across as credible, 
highly brilliant, total recall, and low-key charisma. I called him the tell. I said, Bernie, you're the anti-con con man because you're such a, you come across as he used to tell everybody. I don't want your money. I've got exactly. you know. Don't come into this thing. Uh, you can't ask questions, and I, you know I'm fine. And meanwhile, everybody who was getting him in thought they had exclusive access to him. Yeah, he, so he's, get you in. nobody else can get you in. Exactly, and I've never seen anybody work the takeaway clothes for as long as Madoff did. In sales, there's something called the takeaway close where you're trying to close somebody and you know they're hesitating and you're like, ah, you know what, this is not for you. Right. And he milked that for decades. Yes. You know, the takeaway close. And having done business in Europe and things like that with a lot of uh banks and I used to trade for a lot of Swiss banks and things like that, a lot of the stuff kind of went unsaid because a lot of people are going, well, didn't these people do any due diligence? Didn't they yes. check? Didn't they check the statements? Also, back then, there was no computerization, so everything was paper statements, right? So, you know, I guess he 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 forged a lot of that stuff. You well, know, he had a, a forging business going on. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me say, though, actually, one of Bernie's uh, big successes on the legit business was the computerization of it. He yeah. was head of, head of Wall Street, and it was leading edge. Downstairs, yeah. he was using 1980s AS400s. <laughs> Right. And yeah. they, they spat everything out on computers, but it was completely fake. And, you know, you, when you get your statement from Merrill or whatever, it's a nice laser printed. Exactly. Uh, these, these these were literally on what came out of the computer where you had the dot matrix. Off, you know, yeah. Dot matrix. Exactly. <laughs> and all the confirms in chronological order the end of the month um so it, it was it was it was it was completely faked but he did have a lot of technology the red flags though no he had he didn't allow email of his employees down there yeah, yeah. they had no electronic access to clients even though on the 19th they did okay. uh, and and as you said all these feeder funds hedge funds were not allowed to do due diligence they had yeah. to be willfully blind, and in return, and you guys know how this works. If you're a manager, you get two percent of the assets, twenty percent exactly. of the game. He passed that entire bonanza. Yeah, feeder funds who were used yeah. to getting one percent just yeah. for administering and pointing them to the right right guys. That was basically bribes for silence. Definitely, definitely. And the other thing, uh, sorry, Ray, how J.P. Morgan missed these red flags of this money going through their account. And it wasn't even like, I mean, it wasn't even like an institutional prime brokerage DVP or that kind of an account. It was a checking account, yes. for God's sakes, right? Listen, like, listen you, guys, you, know? you, guys, you guys have watched the docuseries. So on day two or three that it's out, guess who calls me? Jamie Diamond. No way, really? CEO of J.P. Morgan. <laughs> wow. It, it's really great because... He starts off on points that he wants to make, right? Okay. And they're actually rather small points compared to the big picture. But within about 30 seconds, I'm not joking, he realizes I know more than he does. He starts asking me questions. Oh, and, wow. Um, and couldn't, it was, went very well. He actually went to Tufts, uh, where I went, and um, he could not have been classier. And because um, and, uh, I, was, I was literally interrupting him, which is yeah. rude. But I just want to say, like, this is what really happened, Jamie. And Dan, that 703 account was literally a checking account. Yeah. One month before the business went down, and this is a 40-year checking account, 
the KYC officer, right? Know your client. Yep. yep. Thought it was the market maker account. Didn't even know. Didn't even, even know. Right. And why would a market maker be using a checking account? You know, it's like, I mean, these, these, these large companies have like very sophisticated prime brokerage links and, yes. and, and they do delivery versus payment and custodial yep. things and all of that. This, so this is unheard of. And yet all this money is going through it. And sorry, I, 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 on my pedestal, it's because I think it's because Wall Street firms are not, no longer owned by partnerships of savagely cheap old men who watch every penny. Now they're yes. public corporations. So yes. there is no, when, I mean, when I worked at a brokerage firm, the owner of my firm was 70 years old. He wore $99 suits to work and he was worth 400 million bucks. And he took the bus to work and he knew where every penny was. Now these guys are just money's flowing here, there. Nobody really cares, right? Nobody has a vested interest. You know? Let me tell you something too. That account that Bernie had told them was an operating expense account, um, paying utilities and stuff, even though the KYC guy thought it was the market maker, which was a <laughs> New York, that account had $170 billion flow through it. Jeez. His, his strategy, uh, split strike conversions and equity yeah. strategy. So first off, in that account, you should have had tons of counterparty payments. Exactly. Right? Yeah, Secondly, exactly. Over that time period, $4 billion of dividends should have been deposited. Not $1 was ever found for a counterparty, and not $1 of a dividend payment was ever deposited. So wow. this could have been solved in a couple of minutes if J.P. Morgan had had you know had a little bit better uh, due diligence on looking what the hell was going on in there. Amazing. Incredible. Incredible, Jim. So for, for the listeners, uh, how long of a time period did this span this is a good question, by the way, because everybody thinks that, okay, Bernie's got this legitimate business. He was the chairman of the NASDAQ. So something must have happened where he lost some money, right? And he made the moral mistake of saying, you know, like a, like a gambler does. I'm going to double down, do a little Ponzi, fix it. No one will ever know, of course, which never happens, right? Um, and he told me that story in a very complex way so that it wouldn't it'd be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. 1992 was the earliest he would ever admit, right? And he was adamant about it. But here's the real thing. He's building this on the 19th. He's building this on the 17th at the same time, that compartmentalization that you're talking about. So he was actually running them side by side, same mind, ethical, criminal, basically over 40 years. Wow. Incredible. And, you know, you mentioned you made the analogy to a gambler. Was this kind of something he maybe not consciously went into, but it was like, Hey, lost a little bit. Let's try and make up for it. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. Or was this something he kind of like strategized and planned like, yeah. Hey, I could get away with this. That, that's a brilliant point because here's, here's the way I, I, his mind ended up being dissected to me that market maker, right? You're making money commissions up mm-hmm. down, right? So it's control your cost. It's have good people. It's have leading edge technology, all of which he was outstanding at. He takes originally, the 40 years ago, these 20, 24, mainly um, friends and family, right? And he does, one of his first things is he gets into an IPO, right? And you know the underwriters are supposed to stabilize the market. They yep. didn't. They ran, tanked, and Bernie had to ask his father-in-law for 30000 bucks to make them whole. Now, first off, imagine a trade going south and Merrill Lynch offering to pay to make it up. 
Exactly. This is what hit me. He was psychically devastated by the loss. He could Mm. not accept the loss versus the commission business. So what should he have done? This isn't the business that I should be in making bets uh, and managing money. So get me the heck out of it. Instead, he was a people pleaser. So many guys wanted to get in. He became the Jewish T-bill. It was so predictable. (laughs) Going to go up every month. And he he couldn't get out of it. Yeah, maybe a, a blow to the ego, you know, yes. uh, c- yeah. couldn't couldn't accept it. Yeah, um, I, re- I remember reading an article, uh, Jim, a long while back, had to have been years. And, you know, for some reason, it's always stuck in my mind that he was uh, Madoff was I-, I guess he was being interviewed in this article. And, and I guess he was claiming like he was like one of the most popular, revered guys in the prison because of. <laughs> This the scheme he he pulled off that like all the other criminals looked up to him um, and asking him for advice, et cetera. I, I don't know if this ever came across during your uh, your talks with him. Yeah. You know what? It, what What is behind that is that Bernie was the great manipulator. And he had that charisma and he had to be in control. So I'm sure he tried to control his environment. I think that's exaggerated, but Smart. there was a sense that, man, you're cool. You're brilliant. You knew how to do this and, and, and get it off. But he, he, any environment was in, he was going to try and control to the, to the, to the hilt. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did he ever speak on um, his, his time in, in the prison, his experience, anything like that? Well, you know, in a broad terms, the, the problem was that um, that part of it was supposed to be, I'm going to go visit him, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, so be face-to-face with him, and and he had to authorize that. But the warden had to authorize that, and he vetoed it, saying that I was a security risk. And he vetoed it three times. Mm-hmm. So by the time that Bernie was now in um, you know dire medical condition and wasn't seeing anybody, so I didn't end up getting there because of the fact that the warden had blocked it earlier. And I always just assumed I would get there at some point. Um, so I never looked at him that way. And we didn't really get into that story so much uh, because of the fact that I thought it was going to happen when I was face to face with him. Yeah. Yeah. How often would these, these interviews, your, your meetings with Bernie last for? Um, the way we, the way we dealt is through, first of all, in the initial years, he wrote these long, single-space letters, seven or eight pages, both sides, right? And that's how he went back and forth. And then it was via the prison system, uh, email system. And I would just attack, attack, attack questions, and he would come back to me, right? Mm-hmm. We did not do it over phone because of the fact that you're limited to 10 minutes, right? So we wouldn't have had – we and then he has to go get back in line. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let me go see him. So that was what we were left with. He uh, he did call once, and yeah, the prisoners have to call collect, okay? And um, I wasn't here. My wife turned him down. He was so <laughs> friggin' pissed. <laughs> <laughs> you, who, he's not accepting a call from Bernie Madoff. Madoff, you're no kidding. Oh, wow. wow. Incredible. I, w- I want to um, bring it back to his his wife, Ruth. Um, I wanted to ask you with, um, you know, your, your meetings and, and talkings with her, yep. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not married, but I would imagine uh, being married to somebody and like this being kept, you know, uh, not knowing about it. Was there a sense of, you know, betrayal, anger at all or? Yeah. Yes. Let me tell you, um, Ruth and I had a great relationship and we we had uh, sort of regular lunches. Right. And then we texted back and forth all the time um, while she was talking. And um, the degree 
of betrayal and hurt because you have to understand they started dating when she was 13 and she had cult-like devotion so bad that after it happened um and you know bernie confesses to her and then tells her it's overblown a lot of the stuff isn't true don't worry about it and the boys basically said you're with us or you're with her with him she initially was with him and that caused a schism in the family so um she was and when by the time I'm with her, she's pretty much got herself out of his cult orbit, and she's just so devastated. The family name, her integrity, and you know when you're sitting at lunch where she, and came out that he had a bunch of affairs and stuff, and she's Jim, did you know about these? And I said, yeah, I did. I couldn't say another word because it was the pain of, of being across from her and her face. Um, so yeah, the betrayal is unbelievable. Plus they, they had a very nuclear family. They all worship Bernie son commits suicide. Andrew dies yeah, of um, wow. cancer in 2014. And as he described to me, my dad killed my brother quickly and me slowly. Um, she had 800 million taken away from her, left her, left her with two and a half million, 500,000 went to lawyers and she was fine with the whole thing. And she's just a complete survivor. I don't mean fine that her kids died but that she was a survivor. She was driving a dented car, living in an apartment for 2,900 a month in Greenwich. Every expenditure over a hundred bucks, she had to report to the bankruptcy tr- trustee and she, she just went on. Yeah. Yeah. It's tragic. Sad, sad, really. Um, JJ, I guess um, anything, any other questions or I know you've, you've had a story. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> my, I'll tell you my quick Madoff story. Mm-hmm. I was just starting out as a trader and, and, you know, we, what we did was we sent trades to the U S market makers from Canada. So I was on the U S trade desk. So we go to this security traders meeting and my buddy, he's with me at his, you know, he's a good guy, but he's a spoiled rich kid. And so just kind of, he, he likes to mouth off a little bit. We get up there. There's Bernie Madoff, the guy from sharp securities, the guy from Knight, which is now virtue. You know, these are you know major dudes, right? I mean, Madoff yeah. is the grandfather of the Nasdaq, and I'm kind of like, oh, in awe, you know, because I'm just a rookie, and I'm like, nice to meet you, and he kind of like grunts and shakes my hand. He didn't really want to, and out of nowhere, my buddy Spencer, like, who actually later became a head trader at one of the brokerage firms, like Raymond James, he looks at Madoff and he goes, "So, where are all the trader groupies?" And- <laughs> And the old guys just looked at us like, who let these knuckleheads in, you know? And I just, I was just cringing, you know? And he just looked at us and he gave us that look that he has. I don't know if you've seen it, yeah. but it's just like, you know, like you, who let these little scumbags into this meeting, right? So that was my only time that I ever met with him. We did trade with his market making from, you know, um, and it was renowned because he answered, they, they first of all, they, they answered had their, their phone. <laughs> execution advantage back then yeah exactly um, that's why he you know he got it so well yeah. and um other thing was that um they completely uh, he invented almost payment for order flow which i assume exactly right? oh yeah but but he never cheated a customer from best price execution which yeah. is their fiduciary responsibility which i cannot yeah. say about robin hood and robin positions <laughs> himself as a popular exactly. you know and um, so it was it was part of, you know, keeping it legitimate. Now, I don't know if you noticed about Bernie, you're talking about his face. He had all these weird kind of ticks. And 
and eyes and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I always felt that was the only manifestation of the internal tension in his yeah. head that, that sort of came out. And I was kind of a nerdy guy. And um, uh, so I don't know if you noticed it, but but it would be in, if he was speaking uh, or, or something. But oh, yeah. uh, otherwise, and, you know, he loved dealing with the market making environment. The C- oh, yeah. Schwab. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, those kinds of guys. And he hated yeah. dealing with the hedge fund guys, obviously. Oh, yeah. And it, it's just, it's just, yeah, it was really interesting as a rookie because every, it was all so new to me, you know. And, and we felt kind of sheepish, like, you know, like we're, because Vancouver back then was known as the scam capital of the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, the petty stock thing and all of, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street's guys yeah. were our clients. You know, when that place closed down, they were stock promoters and they all traded through Vancouver because it, you know, it went put the put the stock in Switzerland, sell it through Vancouver into the U.S. markets, right? God. And so, you know, they loved our order flow, Madoff and Knight and all these guys because, you know, to get shown first bid, we would pay them way more than other firms would, right? So, you know, where they'd be trading flat for, yeah, we would pay them a lot because we want to get, you know, if you've got two hundred thousand to shares to sell at five bucks, you want to make sure that your client liquidates when that buy order comes in. So you got to make sure Madoff or Knight or Citadel, they show you first bid. So we, yeah, we used to pay them a lot. Like my market makers, a lot of places would make, you know, three, $4 million a month off of our order flow. Just, you know, from, wow. yeah. So it was, it was an interesting time and the internet was going and yeah, I just, I, I still remember that. And I, I, and I never even knew that he had a wealth management division. Exactly. exactly. Right. Nobody ever knew. And, I, I know this is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it. There is a large market-making firm now that does have a hedge fund on the other side, you know, that has become a monopoly. We should maybe be, you know, maybe we shouldn't be just glossing over everything again. All right. Well, then we shouldn't mention Citadel then, right? <laughs> I kind of blew that, you know. But... You know? Uh, uh, it's maybe it's time to open the eyes again. I'm just saying it just, you know, just, you know, I'm sure everything's okay, but, uh, you know, these things, it, it's just amazing. I mean, when, when I started in the industry, you didn't even need ID to open a brokerage account, right? So yeah. Canada was a place where brokers would have fake brokerage accounts to park stock in, you know, it was, it was just, and you know, we were churning yeah. three to 5% commission per trade, you know, so it was wonderful. Yeah, I, sh- we, I should add um, Citadel has a highly, you know, reputable, unbelievably successful um, and they have dark pools and, uh, you know, payment for order flow stuff that I would want to look at. But I don't want us to cast any. Aspersions. No, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, we've we've had a, uh, a fraud recently. Uh, on a big, big magnitude that I want to ask you about FTX uh, with you, Sam Bankman Freed. Uh, just, yeah, I just want to get your, your thoughts on the stories. And if you're seeing, you saw any like similarities uh, with Bernie. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, let me get into the similarities, but I just, I'm going to link it to something JJ said before about the failure mm-hmm. of due diligence, right? Of institutional investors. Well, this FTX had big institutional investors, Citadel, um, yeah. SoftBank, BlackRock, and there were no controls. The accounting system was on like QuickBooks or something. (laughs) You know, you got to wonder about where the due diligence was. Now, let's go back to SBF. One of the interesting things is he presented this image, first off, that he was not against regulation like most crypto guys, okay? 
and that he was had this altruistic philosophy he was going to give it all back and that's a trust relationship right well let's jump to bernie as jj was saying total credibility and an affinity crime in the jewish community sbf uh, gives 73 million bucks to 92 percent democrats right and pays celebrities and also had ex-cftc that oversees crypto uh, guys consulting, right? So here they are, both have built this structure on trust. The same thing. Now let's go to the next level. Bernie had no remorse as a sociopath. And I, once I got totally into his mind, I could see that. And basically Bernie would admit it, um, not subconsciously. I don't know SBF, so I can't make that. But let me tell you something. The dog ate my homework story, which is basically <laughs> doesn't fly with me. Secondly, yeah co-mingling of funds, right, which is what Madoff did, is a big no-no on the street. And then he says, I don't know what's going on in Alameda, except that he owned 90% of that, and his girlfriend at one time was the chairman of that. And let's look at what this dog, how smart this dog was. So he's borrowing $1.3 billion of customer money as collateral for his own trades, right? He put money into hedge fund, he put money into real estate, etc., they programmed it so he didn't get charged interest on that money. So he's stealing the money as collateral and not paying interest on it. And somehow a dog did this who was, you know, uh, <laughs> who'd eaten his homework. So it doesn't smell good to me. And again, these are allegations. These are charges that the SEC and the government have filed, but not proven yet. So ultimately his intent, he deserves uh, the benefit. But I see all these similarities, the co-mingling, the trust, the uh, lack of empathy, the due diligence failure over and over again by institutional clients. Bernie had a lot of, as you know, regular, not wealthy uh, net worth individuals who put money in every month. Well, they didn't understand what was going on, and they were trusting the SEC not to blow five investigations. But you can't tell me that SoftBank or BlackRock can yeah. say, you know, we, we didn't, you know, we overlooked the whole thing, too. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Uh, I mean... I want to quickly ask about um, pick hour and yeah. that, that I find that fascinating how he was able to, you know, you look at it, like the guy pulled $7 billion out of Madoff or something like that. Right. Yeah. So what was the level of his involvement in, in this? And, and I, I, can't, I don't really know the story. Did, how much did he get to keep out of that money? Yeah. Uh, those are really good questions. As you guys probably know, in a Ponzi scheme, the, the wizard behind the scenes usually takes all the money, right? And then he heads exactly. out of town one yeah. step ahead of it. So here we have a guy that took seven billion bucks out. Bernie only stole the 800 million that he stuck yeah. in the back door. Um, so this guy's making nine times. I said Bernie didn't do it for greed. This guy was greedy he, and he was evil. And the worst thing for Bernie is he came to have such power over Bernie because he would put money in when Bernie was desperate. Yeah. That he could extort, he could extort those returns, right? Which were coming yeah. out of a lower net worth made off customers, meaning it was in exactly. my mind reverse Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Um, they went back after, so the government was going to go to try to get 2.5 billion back from Pickhower. Bernie is now he's pleaded guilty, so he's going yeah. to jail. He gets even in his mind by he knew that uh, Pickhower had tons of money at Goldman Sachs. And he's the one that got them to go after the seven and a half billion. And Bernie says, I'm going to implicate your wife, your daughter, all these other guys, unless you give that money back. And he gave back seven billion. The thing is, he had another couple billion hidden away. His wife is still running 
the Pickhower Foundation, which was st- oh. built initially on dirty money. And let me tell you, uh, this was not in the books. I'll give you a little bit of a scoop. But um, this is the level of passive aggressive hate from Bernie, right? Pickhower's and the Madoffs are big buddies in Palm Beach. They live right near each other. And Bernie had an affair with his wife. Oh, my God. There you go. Wow. You, know, you can't make this stuff up. But Pickhower oh, was a bad dude in my mind. The big four overall, as you know, uh, benefited. Um, they they didn't know in my mind that it was a pure Ponzi scheme, but obviously they were doing tons of criminal stuff. Pickhower would call in and dictate his fake returns. And then oh. he would call back at the end of the year and dictate his fake losses so he didn't have to pay taxes, to pay taxes. On, the, on the money he took out. Wow. Wow, he was that's that is a proper villain. He was that, yeah. That is that is a proper villain. Wow. Let me tell you something. He had money with Ivan Boski before, so oh, did he really? Yeah, he had a oh, history of okay. uh, not not big big ethical guardrails. Yeah, so yeah, he didn't he he swam in some pretty shark infested waters. You know that's interesting, interesting, wow. really. Good interesting, question yeah. on pick hour though. Yeah, and wow. Did, did you ever meet Walter Noel or talk to the you Fairfax? Know, um, there's another one of my main, main guys that should have gone to jail. And, you know, Fairfield Greenwich, um, Walter lives in Greenwich here in the back country, still belongs to the exclusive club. And um, as you know, uh, you talk about taking money out. Um, you know, you know, they earned about a billion nine of fees over the time. Remember Bernie yeah. and all that stuff back? back? He put yeah. 16 billion bucks of his client money there. And he, not only should he be in jail, uh, for willful blindness, but he had in this beautiful brochure, the risk management team, and they were had these impressive credentials. And, you know, we, our value added is the due diligence that we do. Okay. Mm. So Bernie doesn't allow due diligence. He passes, <laughs> passes those fees back. Their conference calls on tape where Bernie is telling the risk manager what he's allowed to say and that he's not to say wow. Bernie's actually managing it, that Bernie is doing trades, he's been a great market maker, and blah, blah, blah. And Fairfield Greenwich had to know that this thing wasn't kosher. You know, I still remember seeing that, um, reading about them in, in Vanity Fair in 2002. Yeah, and he, uh, had, those, about, he had those daughters, right? He had yeah, four, and I was like, wow, this guy's got the life, you know, he's got beautiful, this beautiful daughters, family. Each one married in a different, uh, uh, you know, Banking. Way, you know, upper yeah. class guys in different parts of the world. They were yeah. all like feeder funds within the family. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, wow, this guy really, he's got it set up, you know. Not and, a smart guy. He was a sales guy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was, these guys were all white shoe. I mean, I was at the bottom of the rung in the market. So you know, I was, that, that's one of the reasons that Bernie, you know, raised, got his stature in a sense, because initially he was getting stuff from his father-in-law and it was Jewish customers, right? And many of whom were just putting money away each month. All of a sudden, he's into the upper echelon. And then the banks in Europe were sending yes. royalty, along with the oligarchs and the Colombian drug lords hidden through money Oof. laundering. But he yeah. got into a whole rarefied air. Yeah, speaking of the, of those guys, uh, you know, carefully, uh, you know, uh, you know, Davila Shea, uh, you know, he's the, the one who, who really lost out you know, I look at that and he like, you know, quote unquote committed suicide. It's like he, he was, I think he was kind of scared for his life, you know? Well, um, you know, it's funny you say that because Villachey, um was sort of like a Walter Knoll in the sense that he was a really trusted, mm-hmm. not a brilliant guy. In fact, his own risk manager said it didn't really look like it worked. But um, 
He was actually a man of honor. And the problem was he totally trusted Bernie. The whistleblowers, you know, Frank Casey said it can't be work. And you know, Bernie would never do this. He had two billion bucks of customer money that was lost. He actually slid his wrists, most likely out of a sense of honor. Now, meanwhile, Bernie said exactly what you did. He was going to get killed, so that's why he did it. But go to Europe now, and these guys, um, and particularly Sonia Cohn, in my mind, they knew they were, first of all, funneling bad money. Villachay had royalty and stuff, but these guys, yeah. this was Russian oligarchs, um, uh, Colombian drug lords, Eastern oligarchs. In fact, you know, I had access to Bernie's private diaries that were given to be a phone number of every one of these investors. And I was told if I called the person who ran this fund, I'd be killed. And um, so that's the kind of stuff you were dealing with. And um, they're the ones that, to me, uh, you know, should have gone to jail as well. Give you an example. One of the guys who had their money in the FEMA fund, which was um, um, Sonia's, right? She mm-hmm. she create, opened the Bank of Medici, it was called. It oh, was in yeah. one, of these, one of these old buildings. Colonel Willard, um, a guy out of um, out of uh, London, uh, fought in, I was a British war hero, fought in yeah. all the British wars from 1970s on, and there were a lot that I didn't even realize. And um, so he retires, right? And he had put his money um, into the fund. He, he, he was in, the, in Austria. He saw the building. He says, this is a 500-year-old building. This bank must be incredible, okay? Yeah. She had opened it in the 90s in that building. <laughs> and and here's the next thing. Uh, you know, Bernie didn't allow custodians, which is a huge red flag, as you guys Exactly, know. exactly. But he was told, and they were told, that HSBC was the custodian for Thema, okay? Oh. So he said, here she is. They're in this 500-year-old building, and the HSBC is holding all the assets. I don't know how Bernie, I don't know what his strategy means, but look at all this trust. Okay, you know what HSBC did? Subdelegated custodianship to a small bank they owned in the islands off the U.S. Right, the Cayman or Virgin Islands. Okay. Oh, okay. What you know? What that bank did? Delegated the subcustodian rights back to a guy named Bernie Madoff. Wow. So nice daisy this guy, chain. This guy wow. is under the false premise of the security of where his money was. So yeah. you know what? It ended up happening three weeks after Bernie um, uh, goes down. Shot himself in the head in a park in London. Jeez, yeah, there was that. So so many people's lives got yeah. just horribly taken down by this guy. You know, it will give just... me give me chills to this day. Yeah. Let me give you another chill story. Um, Bernie's arrested December eleventh, two thousand eight. Eleanor Scolari, who you'll know from the docu series in the book, is yep. the, one of the heroes. She was Bernie's personal secretary. Yeah. Had she been betrayed by her family growing up, and Bernie had become her family. That's how mm-hmm. trusting she was. 30 years by his side in the legitimate business. She's taking the calls from all the older guys that are dying for their money that day. They, they're, they're, they're seeing their life savings. So stressful, she had to go throw up every 20 minutes. She's wow. in a limo. She's in a limo home, you know, a car service when you work late that. Yep. And Staten Island. And um, her daughter, Sabrina, calls her. And this is only hours after Bernie's arrested. Sabrina had worked in the internship during a high school years with Mark and Andrew. So she knew them. Okay. So she calls her mother in the car hours after Bernie's arrested. And she says, mom, Mark is not going to be able to handle this. He's going to kill himself. And two years to the day of that arrest, he killed himself. Wow. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, that's Jim. just, 
is um yeah it, it it is not tragic sad um jim is there is there something uh that us as a you know a society as a people that we can take away from from yeah. this uh, are these frauds avoidable or is this like a symptom a symptom of human nature okay uh, that's a really good question too because one of the things i said as i tried to ponder at the end um there's something as you know in the medical profession called the hippocratic oath mm-hmm. it means do no harm what I said is bring that over to investor, uh, individual investors. And before you do anything, start with do no harm. That means you don't make investments you don't understand. And no, I never found anybody that understood his strategy, even though it was very conceptually simple. Mm-hmm. You don't go to, um, you don't put your money into something that your friends or your affinity group, in this case, Jewish, a dentist, an Uber driver, tell you to put money into without explaining what it is. You do not put money when that group uh, tells you to do it and when there's a guaranteed rate of return for a a product that faces market risk. Remember, um, I don't know if you know this, but Bernie would January 1 say, JJ, you're getting 18% this year. He would actually give the percent. And by the way, on December, you looked at your statement and you made 18%. And by the way, the way they did that was something called the stoop file which is uh, Yiddish for sexual intercourse or screw. <laughs> they would get to November and they would look at where the fake return was for the year. So let's say it was 11%. Wow. 11%. Well, they knew they had to do fake trades that would get that 11 to yeah. 18, which is like 500% in the month. And that's how they went and knew what they had to do to hit the 18, okay? So yeah. that's another thing. So don't, don't accept guaranteed returns. Another thing, and this is sad, don't accept that the government's going to protect you. The SEC oh, mis- missed yeah. this thing. CIPIC, which is the FDIC equivalent, yeah. basically had no money in its customer fund. And the only <laughs> way they could get money back was to take clawback money from Madoff victims who'd already lost it, but it exactly. take out when they put in and passed it to Madoff victims who'd left their money in. And they took the fee, the trustee took two billion bucks off of, uh, for the fee. So do all those steps. The other thing is that this is forget now all the finance, the complexity. It's a morality tale. It's take the right path. And again, using Eleanor, she made one hundred and twenty five thousand a year. No IRA was totally honest. The equivalent of Eleanor downstairs was Annette Bongiorno, who did um, who was Bernie's right hand person and handled the big four, for instance. And by the and, and a high school graduate. okay, not smart, not sophisticated. Final year, she's making six hundred and seventy-six thousand, and had a fifty-eight million dollars. She thought IRA it turned out to be fake. So the question that used to haunt Eleanor was: They were best friends. They came out at the same time, thirty years. What made her go this way, and the other guy off the right, and Annette go off to the other path? And that's a big, big part of this story too. It's a Shakespearean tragedy. And stay on the right path. And it doesn't pay off in the end. She went to jail. All that money disappeared, and. So, you know, so you can reduce this to pretty simple, uh, pretty simple stuff. Yep. Yeah. Well said, Jim, uh, for the listeners that want to know more about your other works, your other writings, you have a lot of other good stuff out there. Why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit more about what else you've done? Well, I, I wish you were right on that. This is my first book. <laughs> and, oh, uh, okay. First book. And it's, um, Madoff talks uncovering the untold story behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history. It is from McGraw Hill. It's written like a thriller, but it's loaded with all that information. It is the first book that deals with the untold story, which is the failure of Wall Street, the failure of the uh, SEC, the failure of SIPC, FINRA, 
the whole thing, as well as the access uh, to Bernie. And I think it's a really fun read as well, and it's understandable. Um, the Netflix docuseries is Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. Um, Joe Berlinger is the top Netflix mm-hmm. true crime director, directs it. It's also very good. You guys have seen it. My radio show is Business Talk with Jim Campbell, and you can go to jimcampbellradio.com to get access to that and the crime show. And Wednesday, I am headed off, guys, Acapulco. I am speaking at the keynote at the launch of the Spanish version of the book. Hey, excellent. Oh, that's great. Amazing. I'm giving the first minute of my talk in Spanish, and I do not speak a word of Spanish. Well, good luck with that. That's yeah. great. I I was in the Canary Islands at Christmas time, so I, I I want to go back. So I want to learn Spanish. Definitely. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it as long as I don't get abducted by some drug lord. Yeah, <laughs> yeah be careful. Be careful. How long did this first minute uh, take you to uh, get down? The what? Uh, the, you say you're giving the first minute of the uh, the talk in Spanish. Uh, oh yeah. How much practice did this take you? I, I'm still I'm still rehearsing. Still <laughs> my, my son-in-law is um who's from Greenwich, but his family's from Colombia. So I gave him what I want to say, and then I I just wanted the phonetics from him, right? Sure. And you can also, as you know, Google Translate gives you yeah. both sides, and then you can hit it and it you know. So I've been working on the phonetics, right, so that I don't sound like a complete clown, you know. And it's only fifty-two seconds. Um, and you know, it's out of respect, obviously, because these guys, um, there are 150 people going to be there and they're all, um, um, you know, obviously speaking Spanish, except there's a few English people from Canada and the UK. And then I'm, I'm going to get a copy of the Spanish version of it. I have not seen it. Nice. Oh, that's great. Our, uh, we heard also that – have you interviewed Rumi Khan with the Raj Rock? Yes. yes. I, uh, first off, I got the first interview with, with uh, Elliot Spitzer when he got out. Wow. With Dennis Kozlowski uh, when he got out of prison. 60 Minutes got him in prison, but nobody else has got him. And Rumi Khan is my Barbara Walters moment. I got her to cry on, um, wow. on my show. I've had her out a couple times. And um, she's amazing because she obviously eventually came clean. Um, she brilliant Indian woman ruined her reputation. And then even after she got the special treatment by the FBI and, and you know, her sentence, she went and cheated again. <laughs> Why would you have done that? And then she finally, um, you know, uh, stopped uh, doing that. And um, I got her. She's, um, you know, she's another, she's another brilliant woman. And, of course, you guys know the whole Raj Rajaratnam story. Another Greenwich resident, by the way. Oh wow, he's he he's out now, isn't he? I believe. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he is. I'm not a big fan of his. Yeah, yeah. We had on we we had on a trader from Galleon. Um, yes, I've had a guy. I've had a guy from Galleon too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how about he 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 was unbelievable. You had to have access to the uh, quarterly you know statements from the CFOs of these guys, and you know he's 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 getting information and trading within a two minutes afterwards. You know. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> no, no ethical lines uh, whatsoever. Yeah, and and no really common sense either. The the kind of things he said on an open phone line. I mean, dear God. I mean, I mean, I worked in Vancouver, so when the Swiss bankers had instructions, they would fly into Vancouver or fly me to Zurich because they wouldn't even want to talk on a phone. Oh, hundred you know? percent. And as you and, know, Bernie yeah. Bernie didn't allow email on the floor. Yeah. And, you know, Stevie Cohen, who had to um, sign a consent decree with the SEC, you Mm -hmm. never, then they taped him, wiretapped him. You never heard him say a single thing. Oh, yeah. No, no, he's too smart for that. Yeah, he's too smart for that. He's, I mean, he was trained at Gruntle. 
And uh, I mean, that's okay. Come on. Gruntel was like not exactly JP Morgan, right? Most of the guys who worked at Gruntel looked like they could have been on the Sopranos, right? I mean, Frank, Frank like, Pascali, right? Yeah. Or Joe, Joe, Joe Batapaglia, who was on CNBC. He looked like, you know, he looked like he was like Tony's Sopranos brother, you know? And uh, yeah, Gruntel was a different place, you know? That's uh, Those are the kind of guys that I traded with. <laughs> That's why you don't show your face here, I can see, right? Yeah, I still have clients. Well, I traded for the likes of Khashoggi and those kinds of people. So, really? Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the 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 Khashoggi that was butchered, or the or the one that was the tra- arms trader, the arms dealer, yeah. right? So wow. what? Yeah, I mean, I you know, so I did you know those operations that I would carry out. Uh, I would and I would move keep that mask on. <laughs> yeah, so I would move the market makers around like chess pieces to make a stock look the way it needed to look. Um, so that's why I, I tend not to, uh, you know, Let me tell you guys ask great questions. It was a lot of fun for me. That thanks. was great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. It means a lot. It means a lot. And, and so thanks, I, thanks Stephen too, for setting it up. Yes. Yes. Shout out to Steve who uh, orchestrated all this big shout out to Steve. And so that's going to conclude today's episode of confessions of a market maker. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a supportive and professional community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Jim, is there any uh, websites um, or anything you want to plug? Yeah, to uh, listeners Madoff, uh, MadoffTalksBook.com. You can get a link right to where you can buy the book. You can get all my podcasts and radio uh, archives and stuff like that, plus all about uh, the Netflix uh, story as well. Um, anybody that wants to contact me, I'll send a signed book plate. You can put into your... Uh, uh, into your uh, into your copy of the book, and it is um, uh, I can be contacted through the website as well. And I'd love to send you guys um, book plates too if you'll send me your addresses. Absolutely, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate uh, your uh, your thorough your thorough work. Um, excellent. Appreciate it, JJ. Part words. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's it was a pleasure to have you with us, and and uh, we're looking forward to your next work, and we'd like to have you back again. Thank you. Anytime, guys. I really enjoyed it. All right. Awesome. So for Jim Campbell, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, so.